5. Once you've found chapter 5 of Isaiah, if you don't mind, if you're able to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at the first seven verses. Now, these seven verses were a, a song, a poem and a song. And I'll give you some more detail about that here in a little bit. But uh, let's look at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. The Bible says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard uh, that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry, a cry. So the title of the Bible study message this evening is this, a vineyard of wild grapes. A vineyard of wild grapes here. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the Lord was trying to plant a vineyard of grapes that were eatable, that were edible, that fit his purpose. And instead what came out of the soil was wild grapes, something that was not desired to be eaten. And there's a frustration with God toward Israel, toward Judah for not becoming who he wanted them to be. And he said, I've worked it, I've tried, I've given it my all, and you haven't uh, developed into what I want you to be, and so I'm going to tear down the hedge, and I'm going to allow the vineyard to just be utterly destroyed. And so we'll be looking at that title, A Vineyard of Wild Grapes. Let's pray tonight. Lord, help us to understand the verses tonight. And while this is not written to us, there are applications that can be made to us. And so, Lord, help each one of us to find those applications that make us better. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, through Isaiah chapters 2, 3, and 4, rather 2 and 3 so far, we have found uh, two themes, and that is law and grace. We've seen uh, judgment and hope. Another way of wording that is the governance of God and the grace of God, the government of God and the grace of God. And in all of this, there has been uh, this going back and forth, if you will, of Israel being threatened to behave uh, and told they're going to be punished if they don't turn from their wicked ways. And then, uh, and then also there's been prophecy about an impending doom, an impending judgment. And as I have laid out for you, uh, Isaiah has told them, look, this is what's coming in the near future. And then there is a tribulation period, and then there is a second coming. Now, a little bit later in the book of Isaiah, we'll see a whole lot more about the first coming of Christ. But so far, the prophecies have been around the tribulation and the, um, and the second coming of Christ. And in that second coming, as far as Israel is concerned, that is looked upon as a, a good thing, a good thing. We get into chapters 4 and 5, and chapters 4 and 5 really do summarize the whole book really, really well, and uh, are a synopsis of the book. If you want to understand the book of Isaiah, get to know chapters 4 and 5 really well, and you'll have a good idea of what the book is. You could call it the Cliff Notes. Well, let's jump in tonight. I have two overarching thoughts I want to give you tonight, and then uh, letter A and B below each one. We're going to save letter B for next week because that covers 26 verses And so uh, we'll be looking at letter B next week and anything we don't get through today. But the outline I have in front of me has an A and a B below points one and two. And then below letter B of number one, I have four additional thoughts. 
And then uh, four additional thoughts below letter A of point two. So let's jump in tonight with chapter four and notice the future for God's people. The future for God's people. Look with me at um, uh, verse one. First notice letter A, the pain of the tribulation. The pain of the tribulation. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. What is going on here? Well, just a little bit of Hebrew history for you. Uh, In in, uh, Jesus' time and even in Isaiah's time, the Hebrew day started with the nighttime. It would start in the evening, generally 6 o'clock in the evening is when the new day began, and the night would come first, and then the daylight behind it. Night, then uh, then the daylight. And here we find that before you have the second coming of Christ, where Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem, and Israeli dominance is reestablished, the, the light, if you will, we have the nighttime of the tribulation, the struggle of the tribulation. And so, verses 2 through 6 lay out for us the joy of the second coming of the millennial reign. Uh, but uh, verse 1 lays out for us first the nighttime, the beginning of this new day, the pain of the tribulation. And verse 1 tells us that seven women will choose to be married to one man. And the deal will be, hey, listen, please, take away the reproach of us being single and marry us and allow us to be married to you. Why will seven women desire to be married to one man? Because during the tribulation, the wars will be so intense and the battles will be so intense that many, many men will be killed and there will be an imbalance of male-female on the earth and there will be many more women than men as a result of this and women will need to marry, multiple women will need to marry one man if they want to be married at all. Let me show you a little bit more on this idea. Look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 11. Turn over to verse 11 of Isaiah 6. The Bible says, Then said I, Lord, how long? And he said, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the house without man, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Now there's a duality to chapter four and what we're looking at here, at least in verse one. This would not only hap- this will not only happen in the Great Tribulation, but it w- also happened to them when Babylon was raided, uh, raided Judah, and the men were carried away and women were left. And so he was told Preach this, uh, preach to the people until that comes about. Turn over to chapter 13 and verse number 12. Isaiah chapter 13. And look with me at verse number 12 here. And we find how that the, the value of the male, the value of a man will skyrocket, will increase. Verse 12 says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the, the golden wedge of Ophir. Now we know this about precious metals. What makes a metal precious is how rare it is. The rarer the metal, the rarer the, uh, the, the, the resource, the earthly resource, the more expensive it is. Gold is expensive because of how rare it is or how hard it is to get your hands on. Diamonds are uh, maybe even more expensive for that reason. And so during the tribulation, war will kill men. In fact, during World War II, at the end of World War II, in uh, certain sects of our country, uh, there were quite a few more women than men. There was a dearth of men. And so the women had to pick up uh, the slack and go to work in order for the work to be done. And so these women are looking at the man and saying, look, I don't need you to provide for me. I don't need you to buy me bread. I don't need you to provide me clothes. I can work for myself. I'm already working for myself, but please take away my reproach and marry me. The pain of the tribulation. What does seven women being, being married to one man represents? It represents a hardship. It re- represents a lot of pain and hurt and suffering and death and struggle and abnormalities to social norms um, that will exist during that time. The tribulation is going to be rough. The tribulation is going to be painful, the pain of the tribulation. Then the book moves on from the tribulation and talks about the second coming of Christ or the millennial reign. Notice letter B, the promise 
of the millennial reign, the promise of the millennial reign. Um, look back with me at verse number 2 of Isaiah 4. Let's read through verse number 6, and then we'll break it down verse by verse for you. The Bible says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of uh, judgment and by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. Let me give you four thoughts below letter B here. These will be on the screen. You'll have to find a place to jot them down if you're so interested in doing so. We look, look back at verse 2 and we notice the Christ. The Christ. Look with me back at verse number 2 of chapter 4. The Bible says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now, in the Hebrew language, there are 18 different words that are translated into the English word branch, branch. And this particular Hebrew word translated branch means a little sprout, a little green twig coming out of the ground. What is this twig? What is this branch coming out of the ground that's going to bring forth more fruit. Now, when I first read chapter 4 and verse 2 before I dug below the surface, I thought immediately of the verses in the Bible that talk about nature crying out. I thought immediately of the passages, even in the book of Isaiah, that talking about the earth being restored and the child playing with the adder in the ditch and the lion laying down with the lamb. And I thought of those passages, how the fruit of the earth will be renewed and bigger and better than ever, and while I believe chapter 4 and verse 2 mean that, oh, there's a whole nother truth that's much richer below the surface. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 3 and verse number 8. Zechariah is toward the end of the Old Testament, just a handful of books before you get to the New Testament, after the book of Jonah, uh, but before the book of Zephaniah. So, uh, Zechariah, turn with me over to chapter number 3. And look at verse number 8. The Bible says there, Therefore, wait ye upon me. I'm in Zephaniah. Aha, I turned to the wrong book. Zechariah. I'm telling you where to go, and I'm not even getting here myself. There it is. Zechariah is after Zephaniah. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse number 8. Let me try that again. The Bible says, "Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy follower, uh, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men um, wounded at. For behold, I will bring forth my servants, the branch. Is branch all capital letters in your Bible, the way it is in mine? This is a name for the Lord Jesus Christ. This branch that comes out of the earth and brings forth an abundance of fruit." This isn't just talking about fruit off the vine. This is talking about the result of a theocracy in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about the, the efforts and what comes forth from those efforts when Jesus reigns. The fruit will be much better uh, of men's efforts. Turn over to chapter 6 of Zechariah and look with me at verse number 12. The Bible says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And so, back in um, Isaiah chapter 4, we see the beginning of this new day begins with darkness. 
and that darkness is the tribulation. Seven men tying themselves to one man because of a dearth of men in the earth and a desire to marry a man and only being left with one for every seven women. And verse number two ushers in the, the daylight, that day of the Lord, that millennial reign of Christ. And we see that Christ is the branch. Look back at verse two again. In that day shall the branch of the Lord, Isaiah 4, 2, uh, be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. We see in verse number 3, we see verse 2, the Christ, verse 3, we see the citizens. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Now, if you were to go over to Jerusalem today and you were to walk around what you would see is a melting pot of all kinds of religions. It is a conglomeration of uh, Judaism and Islam and Hinduism. and uh, All sorts of religions have taken up abode there in Jerusalem. And they just coexist, but there's only one true religion, and that are those who have given their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes in and ushers in this new kingdom, all false religions will be wiped out. All of these people will be removed. And the citizens of that city, when Christ reigns, will be called holy. Turn over to Matthew chapter number 24 in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24, uh, the disciples come to Jesus early on and they say to him, tell us how these things shall be um, uh, in the day of the Lord, in the coming of the Lord. And so he answers that question, verse 4 down through verse number 14 of Matthew 24. Jesus addresses how things will be um, when it comes to the end times as it pertains to to the nations, the nations. Look with me at verse number 11. The Bible says, And many false prophets shall rise. This is speaking of the last days. And shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Look at verse 13. But he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end Come um, Back in verse 13, it says, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, that's not talking about saved as far as your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That word saved means they made it all the way to the end of the tribulation. They survived the tribulation. These folks who were believers, these folks uh, that were not Jews but or Gentiles, but just citizens of the world that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and endured the tribulation and were not killed, they'll be ushered out of the dark night and they'll be ushered into the daylight and they'll be called holy in the new Jerusalem. They endure to the end. They'll be saved. Again, verse 3, we find language that parallels what we read in Matthew 24. Go back to Isaiah 4, 3. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, he endures to the end in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, again, this idea of enduring to the end, shall be called holy, shall be saved, even everyone that is written among uh, the living in Jerusalem. So we see the Christ, we see the citizens. Look at verse number 4, and we see the cleansing, the cleansing. Look at verse 4, the Bible says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have uh, purged the blood of Jerusalem uh, from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, the cleansing. There's going to come a day where the Lord comes in and He baptizes the loss of this world uh, with fire, with fire. And there's this uh, collecting up of that which is the dead brush of the vineyard, if you will, and the casting of it into hell. Um, the Old Testament prophets, uh, uh, rather the minor prophets, talks about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is that valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And once Jesus finishes with that battle of Armageddon, he's going to gather together the rulers of the world that were in place during the tribulation. He's going to bring them in to the Valley of Jehoshaphat and he's going to divide them up between the sheep and the goats. And those who 
protected Israel against the Antichrist will be allowed to enter into the Millennial Kingdom. And those who did not protect uh, Israel but sided with the Antichrist will be cast into hell. The cleansing, the burning. Turn over to Luke chapter 3 and verse number 16. Luke chapter 3, and we find here uh, John the Baptist prophesying about what one day the Messiah would do uh, with this idea of baptism. We know that uh, John the Baptist baptized with water. Look at John 3 and look at verse number 16. The Bible says, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Look here. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand. He will, be, he will thoroughly purge, cleanse, purge his floor. And will gather the wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. There is a day coming where King Jesus sets up his rule and reign in Jerusalem. And the wheat will be called holy and the chaff will be cast in outer darkness. You'll either be baptized with the Holy Ghost and that you're saved, or you'll be baptized with fire. But all of humanity one day will face a baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cleansing, the cleansing. How is it that Jerusalem will be filled with those who are called holy? Those who are unholy will be removed. And go back with me to Isaiah chapter 4 and look at the end of verse 4. It says here, uh, from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment, judgment and by the spirit of burning. When Jesus comes in, uh, what does uh, Deuteronomy and, or rather Exodus and Hebrews tell us about the character of God? It says, our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, God hates sin. God judges those who uh, reject Him, live in unbelief, and die in their sin. There is coming a day of great judgment where uh, you can lie to me, you can lie to a deacon, you can lie to your spouse, you can lie to your parents, you can lie to your friends, you can convince everybody uh, that, that knows you that you're saved and that you're a good person. There's a day coming where you won't be able to lie to God because He's going to see right through it. There's coming a day where that judgment will come down and that judgment will be accurate and those who have been pretenders and those who have been deniers will be cast into outer darkness. There will be that cleansing, that purging, that burning. We see in verse 4 the cleansing. Notice in verse 5 and 6 we see the covering. Look at verse number 5 and 6 of Isaiah 4. The Bible says, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. Look there, upon all the glory. When I read this verse, my mind immediately went back to the Old Testament where where the Israelites are walking through the desert, and they have a pillar over their heads by day to keep them cool. And they, it turned into fire at night to keep them warm in the middle of the desert. They had a climate control system. But beyond a climate control system, you know what they really had? They had the presence of God hovering right over the top of their head, protecting them and keeping them safe. And then I thought about Moses. Moses up in the top of the mountain. Turning with me, if you would, in your Bibles, over to Exodus chapter 33. And let's look at verse number 22. Exodus 33 and verse number 22. Moses up in the mountain, and um, he wants uh, to be as close to God as he can. Look with me at verse number 22 of Exodus number 33. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in in in, in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. I will cover thee with my hand when I pass by. Jesus is going to be sitting on the throne in in Zion, in Jerusalem. And those who have their abode in Jerusalem, there will be a covering of the glory of God over the top of their home. Now, I don't know that I've ever thought about this or realized this, but there's going to be a physical cloud, a physical cover of the glory of God hovering over uh, each home 
of those that dwell in Zion. Now go back with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 4, and look with me at verse number 6. The Bible says, And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So this tabernacle, this covering, brings about uh, protection and brings about the glory of God. Look back with me, uh, if you would, to Isaiah chapter number 60. Turn over to chapter number 60 and verse number 1. Isaiah 60 and verse number 1. I know we're moving tonight, but I want to cover, uh, get, get through the material and show you some, uh, some neat things while we do it. The Bible says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. The glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. The best place that you can be is in the presence of God, experiencing the glory of God. And that's what the millennial reign of Christ is going to be about. It's going to be about experiencing the presence of God and the glory of God. The glory of God. So here we see the future for God's people. And again, you see Isaiah going back and forth from talking about the way down the road future when Israel is made whole and God fulfills all of the promises and everything the Israelites want is dangled out in front of them like a carrot and said to them, this is coming down the road and usually that either follows or precedes uh, uh, harsh words that are getting ready to come to the prophet about their current state and the punishment that comes along with their current state. We see the future for God's people. Notice number two, the fierceness of God toward His people. The fierceness of God toward His people. Boy, there's going to be a day where Israel's made whole. There's going to be a day where uh, Jesus sits on the throne in Jerusalem and reigns. And Isaiah's going to go back and talk about that from time to time. But that's down the road. That's later. That's once Israel's been made whole. Right now, Israel, the way you're living, the prophet is saying here, isn't so good. Right now, the way things are going, boy, you have the Lord really upset with you. Now, uh, Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll be uh, in Isaiah 5 this week, and then next week we'll finish out uh, the Bible study here in Isaiah chapter 5 and finish up this first prophecy. Verses 1 through 7 are a Hebrew song. And from what I've read about this Hebrew song is that this is, by many people's opinions, the most beautiful song in the whole Bible. And the beauty of it is in Hebrew and in context of the Hebrew culture only. There is no translation in the English that, that the beauty translates over and carries. All right? You would need to understand Hebrew culture and you would need to speak Hebrew. And you really probably would have even needed to have been alive during uh, some time around the realm of this time to really capture the beauty of this. Uh, very poetically, very beautifully, what God is uh, saying to them here is, I have given it my all with you, Israel, and you have not produced and turned into who I've wanted you to be, what I've wanted you to do. Now, the closest uh, I can get to helping you understand what God felt here would be if you're a parent who's had a child that's not quite turned out the way that you've wanted him to. And you poured your soul into raising that child. And you gave it your all. You, do, you did everything right that you knew how to do. And then that child went in a completely different direction than you intended. Now, the heartbreak that a parent feels over a prodigal is the heartbreak being expressed in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So we see letter A, the parable of the vineyard. The parable of the vineyard. Now, we're going to dissect this parable this evening, over the next 15 minutes or so. But let me give you a synopsis of it. Let's look at verse 1, the beginning of it, and then let's look at verse number 7. The Bible says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my, excuse me, of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. I'll give you some more commentary on verse 1 in just a moment. Look down at verse number 7. And we get the translation or the breakdown of the parable. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, 
a cry. So the vineyard as a whole is the nation of Israel. The most tendered, prized plants in the vineyard represented the house of Judah. Okay, you with me? The vineyard as a whole is the nation of Israel. The, 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 the prized plants, the ones that were uh, received the most attention, that was the house of Judah. Go back with me at verse number 1, and let me give you four thoughts here below letter A. Notice the richness of the soil. The richness of the soil. Look at verse number 1 with me here. It says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Now, the one singing the song is God the Father, and the well-beloved is God the Son. All right? My well-beloved hath a vineyard, look here, in a very fruitful hill. We're going to see in a moment that the uh, end result did not please uh, the husbandman, did not please the beloved, but the mistake was not by the, the, uh, the rather, the problem wasn't with the soil. The problem was with the branches. The problem was with the vine. The problem was not the soil. The soil was rich. In fact, a hill was picked that was going to be perfect. And that hill, uh, that hill had the best soil. It had the richest soil. It was the best place for a vineyard to be. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 17. Exodus 3 and verse number 17. Now the idea on a Wednesday evening is that you come in and we do a Bible study and we pull some things out of that Bible study that we can apply to our lives. And so the reason why we flip all over the Bible on a Wednesday evening is because this is a Bible study. Amen? We are studying the Bible. All right, look at verse number 17 of Exodus chapter 3. The Bible says, And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites. Okay, that last one's not there. Unto a land, look here, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you remember when they got to Kadesh Barnea? And they sent the 12 spies in, and they came back. You remember they had a cluster of grapes carried on a pole between two people? I can hold a cluster of grapes in my hand. They needed two men to carry one cluster of grapes. They came back, and they gathered the people, and they said to them, the very first thing they said to them is, this land is rich. It flows with milk and honey. They say, we've seen grapes the size of a man's hand. Here they are. You understand that when God gave Israel land, He didn't just give them any plot of soil. He gave them the very, very, very best. God picked a country. Uh, uh, God picked a people in Abraham. And He picked a land uh, there in uh, Israel. And He led them to that land. And He said to them, the soil is ripe. Both literally and figuratively, the richness of the soil. The richness of the soil. Uh, chapter uh, uh, 5 of the book of Isaiah, we find here that He's saying, God the Father is saying to God the Son, His beloved, He's saying, I've given you the most fruitful hill, the richness of the soil. Notice below that, the resolve, the resolve of the beloved. Look back with me at verse number 2. The Bible says, and He, this is the beloved, He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. That points to prosperity and wealth. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. So look at that last phrase in just a moment. Let's look here at the effort, the resolve of the beloved. Boy, they picked a, a, a plot of land. They uh, put uh, walls around it to protect it. Much of Israel's history, they were kept safe. And David was victorious in his, uh, uh, his attempts to protect the nation of Israel. Enemies came, but the walls never broke. And then Solomon had no war in his land the entire time. And Judah, uh, Judah had freedom uh, from captivity. And while people came in and attacked them, the land of Judah until Babylon assaulted them had great peace. And 
Even Assyria, up until Assyria came in and took them over, Israel had peace. There was a a wall of protection that God put around His vineyard. He was making every effort. He picked the choices of a vine in the man of Abraham and said, I want him to be the one. In fact, let's look at that. Turn over to Genesis chapter number 12, and we see that God looks for a man to be the vine that he's going to plant in that soil and he's going to make uh, that land successful. Great effort, great time, great thought went into making Israel work, making Israel produce grapes that were pleasant. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse number 1. We can almost hear the excitement in God's voice as he calls Abram or later Abraham. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Hey, uh, uh, Abram, I'm going to take you on a trip. And this is great. I've got a land that is awesome. And I can't wait to show you what I have picked for you. Hey, uh, the land was where they would uh, end up uh, after they came out of exile, after they came over the Jordan River. That land was rich. The soil was rich. The branch that would be planted in that would become the vineyard was Abraham. And we see here the choicest pick. Look at verse number 2. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, the anticipation of ripe grapes, edible grapes. Verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. That's that wall of protection, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. We see back in uh, verse number, uh, let's see, verse number uh, 2 of, of Isaiah chapter 5, we see here the fence. We see here, uh, we see here the vine, the choices of vine. We see a tower that's built in the midst, that ability to foresee and stay safe, that prudence. We see the wine press or the great wealth that God promised to come from this vineyard. Look down at verse number 4 of Isaiah chapter 5. The Bible says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done it? Whereof, wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Again, we'll look at that idea here in a moment. But here he's saying, there was nothing else I could have done. I set you up for success. I gave you the prime real estate on planet earth. I chose Abraham to be that original vine. I, I set you up for success. The resolve of the beloved. Below that, notice the rebellion of the branches, the rebellion of the branches. Look at back at Isaiah 5 and look at the end of verse number 2. The Bible says um, uh, therein, And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, between me and my vineyard. He said, I put forth every effort to get a grape that was edible. And all I got was wild grapes. He said, I want now, I want all of you to look at the vineyard. And I want you to judge, is it my fault or is it your fault? The fact that this didn't work out, the fact that I have tried and tried and tried and tried and things have failed, is the failure on me or is it on you? We see the rebellion of the branches. I remember when I uh, was a teenager, we bought a home in White Marsh, Maryland, and it was a town home, and uh, all the homes were, were sort of just all on top of each other. But we had a corner lot, and on that corner lot, there was an apple tree. And I was so excited. Uh, we moved in uh, when, when the tree was bare, and uh, uh, season was coming where there would be blossoms that would turn into apples. And I was excited about there being an apple tree. Just a couple of years prior, I lived in Alabama, and I had picked apples off apple trees to be sold at the, at the fruit stand. And so I was excited at the possibility of pruning this tree and, and, and working this tree. And lo and behold, apple season came. And what did we have? We had apples that were not edible. They were, they were wild apples. And uh, they were uh, just not healthy. I, 
would have eaten one, but then I would have fallen asleep and Angela would have had to come kiss me to wake me up. And we didn't need, need all that. Amen? So, um, but the apples were no good. And, and I can see that if I had planted that tree and worked that tree and worked that tree and worked that tree and never gotten an edible apple, can you see the disappointment after all that labor? And that's where the Lord is here with Israel. He's put forth the effort and he's not gotten the return. Back over in Zechariah. Turn back over there. Hopefully I don't turn to Zephaniah this time. Zechariah chapter number 7 this time. Zechariah chapter 7. And look with me at verse number 11. The Bible says, But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their heart as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts, hath set in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. We see here this rebellion, how that looks. They just put their hands over their ears and they said, we don't want to hear the law anymore. We don't want to know truth. We have a stiff neck and we have a hard heart. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. You know, I see that a lot of adults, and here's where I'll make my application tonight. I see that a lot of adults are nothing more than just more sophisticated versions of little children. You know, little children lack the sophistication. When they don't get their way, they pitch a fit and they make a scene. Do you know that adults pitch fits just the same? I see a child not get his way and he goes and sits in the corner and crosses his arms and sulks. Do you know that adults sulk all the time and they don't get their way? I remember being a little guy. I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, about the same age Matthew is now. And I was growing some independence in my heart the way preteens and teenagers do. I remember my dad had gotten on me and I was in trouble. And he was just lecturing me. I mean, he was letting me have it. He said, boy, look up here at me. And I just put my head down. And he said, you look up here at me right now. And I refused. I refused. And he took his hand and he grabbed my chin. And my neck was stiff. And he forced my neck up against my will. When the Bible talks about God's people having a stiff neck. You know what that means? You don't want to look God in the eye because you know the way you're living is sin. One way to know that if this is where you're at is that you come to church, but your heart's not tender toward preaching. When was the last time you visited an altar at the end of a sermon? You say, well, that's just not my style. Okay, when was the last time in your heart you went to the altar? I think it's healthy every now and then to come and bend a knee at the altar. You say, well, I'm introverted. I'm scared to go up in front of all those people. Even the more reason to go. Humble your heart. Bend a knee. I'm not saying you've got to go every service. I'm not saying you've got to go every, every week. I'm not saying you've got to go every month. But when was the last time you bent a knee at an altar and the Lord was convicting your heart over something you know, there have been times when I've been sitting in church listening to preaching and the message had nothing to do with me. But the Spirit of God took something in a verse that was read and said, hey, right there, man. That right there you need to work on. And I've been eaten up with conviction sitting in the pew without one word coming from the preacher's mouth. That stiff neck, that hard heart, that nope, I'm going to do it my way. Hey, God's trying to work a work in you, Christian. He's trying to produce the fruits of the Spirit, but oftentimes what he gets is crab apples and wild grapes. You know what that comes from? That comes from rebellion. That's, you know what, I'll have my brand of Christianity. There's nothing worse when you're a coach of a team than having that one player that marches to the beat of their own drum and wants to do it their own way. And God's got all kinds of Christians on his team who want to march to the beat of their own drum and do it their own way. Hey, be a team player. Do it the Lord's way. Let's not give God 
our version of love, and it's crab apples. It's wild grapes. Let's be that tender plant. Let's be that obedient, submissive servant. When God cuts something out of our heart that hurts, we say, that hurt, Lord, but thank you. Because you're purging me. We see here that Israel was bent toward rebellion. Yesterday, I was up in Niagara Falls, New York, with uh, Brother Joe Idamerican and Pastor Andrew. I'm getting ready to start a podcast here in the next couple of weeks with my former pastor, Pastor King. We're really excited about it. I'll give you more information about it soon. But you have to understand something about Pastor King. When it comes to technology, he is about as illiterate as it can be. And so uh, we drove up there Monday morning and got back late last night, and uh, we installed internet cable in his building so that he would be able to record this podcast. And uh, we went to the store and we bought a Cat5 blue cable and it came in a roll. It was all rolled up and we took it out of the package and what, lo and behold, that thing was kinked up and knotted up from the very beginning. And uh, here we are, the three of us, out in that hallway, me and Brother Joe and Pastor Andrew, we're trying to get this thing unwound. And you know what we found is that because it had been wound up, it just naturally wanted to go back to being tangled. How many of you here ever try to untangle the cord and have that happen to you? Amen? That's my wife's charger cable. Amen? And I looked at that cable on the floor yesterday, and I saw it kinking back up. And you know what I thought? I thought, that cord right there represents my sin nature. I just keep going right back to being a sinner. I keep going right back to struggling. And God says, hey, when are you going to quit? When are you going to knock it off with the stiff neck and the hard heart? When are you going to quit? When are you going to break out of that complacency, that callousness that you have? Some of you in here, it may not bother you. Uh, it, it may, it, it, the fact that you sin may not bother you. Hey, listen up here. It ought to bother you that it doesn't bother you. Some of you in here, uh, you may not care when the Bible is preached and it goes against your lifestyle, but you ought to care that you don't care. It ought to bother you that it, that it doesn't bother you. It ought to hurt you that you are living in rebellion and you've just gotten a place, to a place where you just shrug your shoulders. The rebellion of the branches. And lastly, the fourth thought we see here is the response of the beloved. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter number 5 and look at verse, verses number 5 and 6. And, and listen, you have to understand before we read these two verses here that this effort the Lord made to bring forth grapes, not wild grapes, grapes, was well over a thousand years. He made every effort multiple times. He, he, he dug up the garden and started over multiple times with captivities and, 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 and bondage and slavery, having them enslaved and sending them back. But to no avail, he said, that's it, I've thrown up my hands, I'm done. Look at verse number 5. We see here the Bible says, And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it will be trodden down. What's that mean? Hey, that protection that I've given you from uh, your enemies in the region, hey, it's gone. I'm taking down the wall. And, and by the way, those of you that say, well, God wasn't powerful enough to protect Israel and Assyria, and Babylon just became too strong. No, this was prophesied a long time in advance. The wall is coming down, and the enemies are going to come in, and they're going to take over first Syria, then Assyria, and then Babylon. You will be taken away. Why? Because of the rebellion of your heart. Look at verse 6. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain. No rain upon it. And we know that well over a thousand years from history, there was very little rain that fell in this region. And much of Israel became a desolate desert. And there was the early rains and the latter rains that would fall every day. And even to this uh, point, only the latter rains have been restored. And half of the rain they used to get has been restored. This uh, this desolation of rain did occur. occur. It did come true. Uh, the briars and thorns figuratively grew up in the land. The city burned. God said, because of your rebellion, my response, my 
cold, calculated response is that you will suffer because of it. Look at Proverbs chapter 29 and verse number 1. We're almost done. Uh, Just a few pages back to the left there. Proverbs chapter 29, and uh, this is a point of application for us today as Christians. We're not going to read 2 Kings 24 14, but that verse there, Second uh, Kings 24:14, just tells you about uh, Israel being Judah being carried away into Babylonian captivity. This prophecy in Isaiah 5 about the vineyard absolutely came true. Look at Proverbs 29:1. Let's make an application as Christians, and then we'll shut it down for tonight. The Bible says, "He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy." You know what that means? God's going to keep showing you mercy. They keep giving you chances and keep giving you time to change your mind. But there's going to come a point where God is done with the correction and He's just going to come down hard on you right there. And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to go from mercy to truth in one quick, one quick swoop. And if you don't want to turn, you can expect God's wrath to fall on you. Now, how does that look like in the life of a Christian in the 21st century in the church era. We've been looking at another dispensation or era inscription. I'm done. But just real quick here, what does that look like? I'm going to tell you what I think it looks like. Oftentimes, how does God get our attention when we won't, when we have a stiff neck and we won't look him in the eye? How does God punish us? Well, I found that he touches one of three things. He touches our health. He touches our wealth. And I think the third one is He can touch our relationships. You know, you take away a man's health, God's going to have His attention real fast. I don't want to be that stiff-necked Christian that won't come under and do what God says and make him take my health away and put me in a hospital bed or take my legs away or cause me to have some serious uh, uh, cancer or health problems before I look up and say, okay, Lord, now I don't have a stick neck anymore. You have my attention. I don't want my home to be taken away. Now I'm homeless or carless or whatever the case would be. I, I don't want God to have to reach down and touch my relationships. And uh, that leads to, you know, uh, my children not wanting to have anything to do with me and my wife not wanting to have anything to do with me and uh, my friends not wanting to have, And I'm all alone on this world because I had a rebellious heart. And God said, okay, I'm taking off the walls. There's the protection gone. I'm going to let the briars and thorns grow up in your life. I'm going to let uh, everything go. I'm done. I'm done trying. I've tried and tried and tried and tried. And now that you're going to be cut off and that without remedy. Boy, I don't want that. Then how do you avoid that? Maintain a tender heart. I have learned that there's a lot of room of God's grace in my life that if I slip and fall... When I'm truly repentant and I get up and I keep moving forward, hey, the very next time I fall, even if it's just a short distance further, God is so gracious and kind and He never corrects any more than He has to because He knows my heart is in a place of being tender. But when you just backslide right out of the church and even if you don't leave in body but you leave in spirit and you're just kind of going through the motions and you're watching things on TV you shouldn't and you're hanging out with people you shouldn't and uh, you've turned off the conviction of the Holy Spirit Spirit of God, boy, you better watch out. There's going to come a day and time where God's going to come down hard on you and He'll get your attention if you're really His. So what can we learn tonight? Hey, don't be that vineyard of wild grapes. Let's let our life be that vineyard that produces the fruit of the Spirit that's edible and enjoyable to the world around us. Let's stand together tonight. We'll finish the Bible study next week looking at verse 5 down through verse 30. There are six woes laid out and that word woe is the, the, the most uh, uh, demonstratively negative word in all of the New Testament. So we're going to look at the six woes that are laid out in the rest of the passage where God's coming down on them for that. So we'll be looking at that next week uh, out of the rest of chapter 5. And I hope you'll show back up for that. Thank you for being here tonight. Great crowd on a Wednesday night.